The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord. When the Pharisees, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, they observed that some of his disciples ate their meals with unclean hand, unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, and in fact all Jews, do not eat without carefully washing their hands, keeping the tradition of the elders. And on coming from the marketplace, they do not eat without purifying themselves. And there are many other things that they have traditionally observed, the purification of cups and jugs and kettles and beds. So the Pharisees and scribes questioned him. Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders, but instead eat a meal with unclean hands? He responded, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. You disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition. He summoned the crowd again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, nothing that enters one from the outside can defile that person. The things that come out from within are what defile. From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within, and they defile. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. If you were standing outside and someone came up to you, And they said, oh, do you see that rock? Can I touch it? What would be your response? Yeah, why are you asking me, right? And then like, oh, can I pick up that rock? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, can I take this rock home? Like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Like, it's just a rock. Can I paint it? Yeah, sure, go ahead. What's the big deal, right? Um, We kind of don't care about that rock, right? So we really have nothing to say about it. Now, it's a little bit different if, let's say, um, we're by the Mona Lisa and someone comes up, oh, can I touch that picture? Well, no, you can't. (laughs) Can I take that picture home? Uh, No, no, you can't. Well, why? Why? Well, one we value, the other one we don't, right? And we place certain laws around things that we value, right? Things that we don't have value for don't have many laws. We don't worry about. We don't spend our time thinking about. But the things that matter in life, those are the things that often laws surround. Now, certainly there's another aspect of laws that when we often have laws around things that people do wrong or kind of mess up, but, but uh, we only have laws around those things because the way in which people mess up matter, right? It might hurt things that matter, which are people, right? So, if, uh, so uh, it's really, again, all revolved around people 
or around things that we care about is where we place laws, right? Now, the United States has an interesting kind of relationship with laws because we were kind of founded on a rejection of a law, right? And saying, Britain, you can't tell us what to do, right? But yet, now in the modern day, America is one of the most uh, lawyer-ridden, right, kind of law uh, countries uh, in the world, right? Um, And we kind of often have this kind of don't tread on me, individualistic understanding of laws of, well, laws are okay, but really as few as possible. And really, I don't want to follow the laws, right? We, we have this attitude as Americans. And what I would say is that as certainly, I would agree that there are certain laws, maybe perhaps we've got too many, but um, that's for another discussion. Uh, the laws that I want to talk about is the laws, again, to make us think about a little bit more Uh, to make you think about what do we think about when we think about laws in the Old Testament? What do we think about the laws when we think about the laws of God? Well, if we equate them to a governmental law or a human precept, then we can sometimes buck a little bit against them, right? And say, well, I mean, do we really need them? Does God, you know, what's the interpretation? How do we get around them and different things? Instead, what we should see laws as as something that matters, right? God places laws around things that matter for him and especially for us. That's why he's given these laws. And in the first reading, we actually see here, uh, Israel is praised because no nation has God as close and no nation has precepts and laws that are as just as the country of Israel. And where did Israel get those laws? From God himself, right? However, then we get to the gospel today and we kind of have a a problem with the laws. Well, what's happened to the laws? The laws are no longer honored as God-given, but we've kind of, at times, which often happens to humans, is we take what is the first law and then we've got to set laws around those laws and then laws around those laws, right? And we kind of get farther away from what the intention of the original law is. And then we sometimes place those exterior laws as more important than the law that was originally meant to help. And that's really what Jesus is criticizing today. He's saying, you're treating those other laws on the outside which are not inherently bad, but is more important than the law of God. And that's a problem, right? Now, we've been talking over the last few weeks about the bread of life and the Eucharist. And I'd like to uh, still focus on the bread of life. We're not walking through the Gospel of John anymore. We've actually jumped back in the Gospel of Mark, which is year B, which is what we'll continue to do. However, I think that we still can talk about the bread of life. I'd like to talk a little bit about the laws around the bread of life, around the Eucharist. And one of the reasons why we've got a lot of rules and a lot of laws around the, around the Eucharist is because it matters. If it didn't matter, we wouldn't have any laws around it. Interestingly enough, uh, kind of somewhat to a side degree, the church actually has a book called the Code of Canon Law. And it's actually compiling all the laws of the church to kind of guide about what you can do, what you can't do, what you're supposed to do, how uh, different things are supposed to take place. And I took in seminary one whole class just on that whole book, which really didn't give me a huge amount of understanding. It basically just gave me uh, you know, a general feel and understanding. 
But I actually took a whole nother class just on the marriage law within it because the church has so much, so many laws on marriage. Um, and the part of the reason why we have so many laws on marriage is because it's really important. Well, we also have a lot of laws about the Eucharist. We have a lot of precepts, a lot of things that we, uh, the church has chosen. Uh, the church has a certain authority that is something more than just human beings to, to be able to set is that the church has an authority to be able to bind and loosen certain things. Not all things, because the church can't change divine law, but it does have the authority, because Jesus Christ gave the authority to the apostles to bind and loosen, and we believe that that authority has continued on in the successors of the apostles. And so the church, through the successors of the apostles, still have that authority to bind and loosen in certain ways. Not bind and loosen to try to tie us up, but to bind and loosen to be able to help us to be able to worship God in a greater way, to point us in that direction and to be able to help us make it through this earth, right? And so the church has certain laws about the Eucharist to be able to help us in that. And I'd like to go through some of those laws that the church has set up to be able to help us. The first one uh, that I would say that we have, and probably the most important, is our Sunday Mass obligation. I don't know if you've heard that before, right? We have a Sunday Mass obligation. And of course, obligation, it sounds bad, right? Just as most laws do, right? Oh, man, so oppressive. It's an obligation. Oh, it's so hard for one hour on Sunday, right? So difficult. The church gives you, right, the rest of the week. And for one hour on Sunday, you've got to dedicate to prayer to God. And it's a pretty, actually, small obligation in the midst of it all. And the obligation is here, again, not to burden you, but to actually help and point you to what the divine law is. What's the divine law? The divine law is to keep holy the Sabbath. And the church binds us and kind of gives us this construct to be able to say, how do we honor the Sabbath? Well, for us Catholics, the best way that we can honor the Sabbath is actually to attend Mass. And I talk about this a little bit, a little bit, but the Mass is actually the perfect prayer. There's no more perfect prayer than Jesus Christ's full life, death, and resurrection. His prayer of his sacrifice to the Father, telling us to do this in remembrance of him, his presence in the Eucharist. There's no perfect, more perfect prayer than the prayer of the church. However, we also acknowledge that objectively, this is the most perfect prayer. Subjectively, personally, we might experience it a little bit different, right? We sometimes don't always experience this as the most exciting prayer, right? Or maybe uh, the most powerful prayer. That's okay, but we still have to acknowledge that this is the most perfect prayer because it is the prayer of Jesus Christ in the midst of it all. And so the church obligates us in that way to point us, to remind us what the truth is, right? It's not because of Sunday Mass obligation. We actually saw this during COVID happen, where bishops actually dispensed us from the obligation to attend Mass. Now, that wasn't to say that Mass isn't important. It's, but it's to, and it was, they weren't able to dispense you from keeping holy the Sabbath, right? That we still have to make the Sabbath, Sunday, uh, for Christians, a little bit uh, different and set it aside for God, but they were able to dispense from the obligation to attend Mass, okay, right? So that's, that's one thing. That's kind of the, the biggest thing that we kind of experience as Catholics. The second thing is uh, that we have a law about is fasting. So we actually have an obligation 
to fast an hour before receiving the Eucharist. Now before, the church actually used to obligate us to fast from midnight the night before. And you couldn't even drink water or medicine or anything else from midnight the night before until you received the Eucharist. And that's often the case why Mass was so early in the morning, is because people were trying to get Mass in, receive the Eucharist so that they could kind of continue on with the day and other things. In fact, they wouldn't even let you brush your teeth, which I think is, you know, uh, something, something else. Uh, the church kind of changed that to bind and loosen and to change certain things to be able to say, well, how, what, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to... Uh, We're trying to prepare not just our physical bodies to make like space in our stomach for the Eucharist. We're trying to make space in our heart, right? We're trying to make space in our dedication and our focus to receive the Eucharist. And that's why the church obligates us to fast before receiving the Eucharist. Now, an hour is really not that difficult. In fact, if it's a long homily, it really all you've got to do is, is not eat when you get in your car to come here, right? It's really not that difficult. Now, I know some people who fast kind of an hour before the start of Mass, which I think is really good. Um, uh, if for whatever reason, you know, you can drink water and, and medicine that hour and not break that fast. And if for whatever reason you come to daily Mass or different things, that sometimes uh, makes it a little bit more difficult to keep that hour fast. If for whatever reason you do accidentally eat something, uh, what you can always do is ask the priest, right? This is something that a priest can actually dispense to you from that obligation if there is a just reason. Or the other thing is just to refrain from receiving the Eucharist, and that's okay, right? So that's the other thing that I'd like to talk about is that the church also gives certain laws uh, and obligations in terms of who's able to receive the Eucharist and who's not. Again, why do we have these laws? We have these laws because we have them surrounding something that's really important, the Eucharist. And so we ask that non-Catholics don't receive. And, And why do we do that? Well, we want to make sure that those who do receive fully believe in what it is and are able to receive and able to respect what the Eucharist is, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And if someone doesn't believe that, then they shouldn't receive it, right? Not out of rejection of them, but but out of respect for our beliefs in what the Eucharist is. As well as... um, if even if uh, a Catholic doesn't believe, a Catholic, if they don't believe, they, they shouldn't receive. Now, if they do believe that, then if they do believe that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, as Catholics begun, then we would hope that that person would become Catholic, right? We want everyone to receive the Eucharist. However, we realize that some people aren't in the state to be able to do that. Now, one of the other reasons why Catholics might not receive is if we're not in the state of grace. The church talks about the state of grace. Well, that's being in a state where we're baptized, right? We've received the sacraments uh, and that we're not aware of any serious sin that we've committed that's unconfessed, right? So if we are aware of a serious sin that needs to be confessed, a mortal sin, as the church kind of speaks about it, then we should also refrain from receiving the Eucharist until we're reconciled to God. That's one of the reasons why I offer confession a half an hour before every Mass in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, which is just down that hallway, just in the corner. I'm actually pointing to it over in that direction, which is an awesome place to go pray. Uh, But I offer confessions a half an hour before every Mass because I want you to be able to receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, right? of repenting from your sin. Now, some of the other reasons why we might not receive is, is let's say you come to Mass and you are just so distracted that you realize that when it's time for communion, you have not prayed at all and you haven't paid attention at all. 
Well, that might be also another reason to be able to abstain from receiving the Eucharist because you haven't prepared yourself adequately to be able to do that. That sometimes happens with ministries sometimes as well. Ministries will sometimes pull you in a lot of different directions. And I actually encourage people who do different ministries, who sometimes get pulled in too many different directions, to actually come to a different mass where they don't have to do that ministry so that they can actually pray and prepare themselves for that. Now, a few other things I'm going to just run off, a few other laws that we have, is we have a light on the tabernacle. That's for us to know that Jesus is present. Again, if Jesus isn't in the tabernacle, the light's not going to be there. But if Jesus, if we have the Eucharist in the tabernacle, the light will be there. And what that reminds us to be able to do is to be able to honor him in the way that we should. And what the church asks us to do is that when we enter or exit a space with the Eucharist, that we would genuflect. And a genuflection is actually the right knee going all the way down to the ground and touching the ground. And that's, again, acknowledging Jesus Christ truly present in the Eucharist and acknowledging him as king of the universe, right? It's a small gesture that we do with our body to remind us of the truth of who God is in our lives and in the universe. It should help us to not be a hollow action. It should be an action that, again, points us to the most important thing of who God is and what the great gift of the Eucharist, the bread of life, is for us. We also have a few other things. We'll notice that the servers will ring the bells, right? That's, again, uh, something that points us to what the Eucharist is, that we have patents uh, sometimes underneath when we receive the Eucharist, that we have a corporal. You'll notice that I take a little bit of extra time after distributing communion to purify everything. That's because it's something that's really important, right? And so we're going to take some extra care. We're going to purify everything. We're going to make sure that there's not any crumbs, that Jesus isn't just discarded in, in crumbs and that we don't care, but we take that care in consideration because of the importance of what it is. If it wasn't important, we wouldn't care about it. It would be like that rock. Can I pick it up? Can I take it home? Can I paint it? Yeah, sure. I don't care. But the Eucharist is so important that we have all these laws, all these different things. Again, not to prevent us from receiving, but allowing us and guiding us to be able to receive in the correct way. I would just finish with the last way of receiving is that the church asks us as we come forward to receive Uh, to bow before receiving the Eucharist. And so uh, that's actually more than a head nod, uh, but it's actually a bow at the hips, not to 90 degrees, uh, but just something uh, with the hips uh, to be able to stop and pause right before we receive. Now, normally if there's a line, uh, you bow when the person in front of you is receiving the Eucharist. I realize that sometimes this communion line is a little bit awkward and, and, and sometimes you're kind of running up to get there. I just encourage you to take a moment before receiving the Eucharist. It's okay. I'm not going to be rushed. I would much prefer us to be slower and reverent than to be fast and irreverent, right? And so as you come up, if for whatever chance, you know, you're kind of running up, take a moment, bow, right? And then go ahead and get ready to receive the Eucharist at that point. I'm not going to rush you. The extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion realize what you're doing and go ahead and take that extra moment so that we can prepare ourselves in the proper way to acknowledge what uh, the bread of life, the Eucharist, Jesus Christ truly present. 
also with receiving the Eucharist. There are two different ways that the church kind of gives us to be able to receive. The first is on the tongue. And that's kind of the traditional way that's kind of uh, developed throughout the years uh, and and different uh, ways. And so if you'd like to receive on the tongue, uh, you can receive uh, on the kneeler here in front, specifically with me because I purify my hands kind of after each one. The second way is with your hands. And what I would ask, if you're going to receive on the hands, to receive with both hands, one underneath the other, making uh, a throne, as we kind of say, with both hands. If you're not able to receive with both hands for whatever reason, if you're holding something or you've, uh, you've got kids in your hands or, or whatever else, if you're not able to use both hands, I would ask that you receive on the tongue. Um, that's, again, so that we can give the proper reverence to Jesus Christ. These things, I want you to be able to receive the Eucharist. Uh, the church wants us to re- receive the Eucharist, but we want to be able to do it and receive the bread of life in its proper context and a point to what it truly is. And so let us experience these laws, not as human precepts that keep us away from God or make them sometimes more important than God, but to remind ourselves that all these precepts, all these things that the church guides us is actually to point us to the proper worship and practice of the faith and to worship God in spirit and truth.